and welcome to the Halloween edition of the Giant Robots Smashing into Other Spooky Giant Robots podcast. It is Halloween, Thursday, October 31st, and I'm here today with the extremely scary Drew Neal. How you doing, Drew? <laughs> I'm alright, how are you doing? Good, thanks. Uh, so, Drew, you are the creator, you're the voice behind Vimcast.org, uh, and you recently wrote a book called Practical Vim. That's right, yeah. And uh, you also produced a couple uh, screencasts for Learn as well. Yeah, yeah, that's right. How did you get to become uh, the Vim guy? Well, I guess Vimcasts was what, where it all started. I, uh, I started Vimcasts, I'd say, within a year of becoming serious about Vim. I couldn't say for how many years I'd been using Vim for before that. Because uh, everybody uses it in a sort of casual fashion, but um, I had a I had a change of job that meant I uh, I went from using a Mac and TextMate to a Linux workstation and having to choose something uh, something else as my editor. And uh, I dived in um, with two feet, and I, I absolutely loved it. I, I became really passionate about it. And round about the time, I I've always enjoyed teaching, and I. I was inspired by Railscasts. I wanted to do some screencasts on something. And I had, I'd had had a few ideas that year about various topics I might cover. And then suddenly Vim became my burning passion. And I thought, right, this is it. I'm going to do Vimcasts. And like I say, I was a bit of a beginner at the time. But for every episode, I would choose a topic. It was something that I wanted to understand better. And I would research the hell out of it and then put together a, you know, a video which showed everything you need to know in hopefully less than five minutes. And so after I'd done a few of those, I started to sort of look like an expert. And uh, about halfway through that year, I, I, the year that I started Vimcast, that was 2010, I, um, I felt like I'd built up enough of an audience and I had so much more to say about Vim that I couldn't quite deliver um, these screencasts quickly enough. And I thought, maybe I should write a book on this. Uh, so I approached the Pragmatic Bookshelf and uh, uh, pitched them this um, kind of beginner's guide to Vim. And we went back and forth a little bit. Uh, they thought maybe I should aim at slightly more advanced level. And, uh, you know, we, we found some middle ground. And, uh, yeah, they signed me. And uh, I, I thought, OK, I can, I can write this book in, well, let's say, uh, four or five months. I thought I, I could save up enough cash so that I could, uh, you know, not do any, not do any client work d- during that time. Um, and 18 months later, I'd finished Practical Vim. <laughs> <laughs> that was about this time last year. So, uh, yeah, um, everybody tells you that if you're... If you, uh, choose to write a book. It's much harder than you think. And uh, I thought that I'd factor that into that four or five month estimate, you know? Yeah. <laughs> but it really, it really was uh, a mission to get that book written. Um, but uh, I, I stuck at it. And uh, yeah, I've been very happy with the, the way it's been received. What do you think, what contributed to it taking so long? I think one of the factors was I started out writing the wrong book. Uh, Practical Vim is a sort of recipe book uh, that's got 120 tips which are designed to sort of be self-contained. Uh, some of them cross-reference others, so it's a very... Um, it's not really a book that you need to read from start to finish. You can open it anywhere. And if that tip depends on some knowledge that's described elsewhere in the book, there's a cross-reference for it. So I kind of like the idea of, rather than having a, a regular old contents page, I've always wanted to put together a sort of a web uh, showing uh, how, the, how the book is put together. And I think some of the tips are um, possibly have more inbound cross-references than others. Uh, and what I found, um, I didn't know that that was the best way to write this book to begin with. And I found it really hard to find um, a start point for a book that you would read from start to finish. And that's what I started out trying to do. And everything, everything that I thought, okay, this is it. This is like the first thing you need to know. I would try and write that. And then I would have to explain something else. And then I think, okay, maybe I can try starting with that. And then there'd be something else that I had to explain. And it just seemed to go round in circles. 
Um, and by switching to this recipe format, uh, I could kind of get away with that. Uh, and then I could, um, the, the pragmatic bookshelf have this recommendation that your first chapter should, um, you know, the reader should have something they can use on page one. Uh, you know, they, they advise against starting with a, a sort of boring but worthy history of the topic. God, I love that. So, uh, so I, I use that, uh, that same idea in talks, like conference talks. Right, yes. Um, yeah, no, it's uh, um, people, yeah, people want to, you want to get people past page one, you know? Mm-hmm. So uh, anyway, when, when I switched from this sort of book reading from start to finish to the, uh, uh, I'd, I'd been writing for about seven or eight months before we decided that it wasn't working and we had to switch the format. Um, and I had at that point about 200 pages. Oh. <laughs> and I was, I was aiming for a 300 page book. So I thought that I was two thirds of the way through. Wow. And then I spent about maybe four to six weeks rewriting the content I had. And the great thing was the new format, the tip format, meant that I could reduce a lot of redundancy. Uh, Things that I was having to explain again and again, I could now just have cross-references to the one place where that's explained. You refactored your book. Exactly, yes. And, uh, well, um, when you write codes with with tests, then refactoring is something of a joy. But uh, (laughs) writing a book, there's there's nothing equivalent to having tests. The only thing you can do is show it to people, and they will point out the stuff that doesn't make sense. Right. Uh, It's a very slow uh, feedback cycle. Mm Mm-hmm. But yeah, I remember, I remember rewriting the first, the first chapter. I, I'd been writing for seven or eight months at this point, and I wasn't happy with anything. <laughs> I, I didn't actually want to show it to people. I rewrote one chapter, and I was scared to show it to people because I knew it was better. And I knew that, uh, you know, <laughs> at, at this point we were still deciding which format to go with. And yeah. I knew that uh, people were going to tell me this was better, and I was happy with it for the first time. And it was going to take me a lot of work <laughs> to rewrite right. those 200 pages of material. Uh, so it was, uh, I sort of felt as though I had to start from, f- from the beginning after nine months. Uh, and as I say, I went from 200 pages to 120 pages. So I went from thinking I was two thirds of the way through to thinking I was just over a third of the way through. Uh, so it was, uh, it was a big, um, it felt like a big setback, but uh, absolutely the, the result is, um, is better for it. Were you working with an editor over at Prague? Yeah, yeah, that's, that's how they roll at, uh, at the Pragmatic Bookshelf. They assign you a development editor who is your, uh, I, I think of it as uh, your development editor is like your coach. Uh, I, for me, the word editor tends to suggest someone who, you know, strokes the T's and dots the I's and uh, enforces her style and so on. And my development editor, she, you know, she would do a bit of that if, um, if, if there was something obvious, but it was more just, you know, okay, I, I would get, I would try something out and I would get stuck and I would write to Kay and I would say, I'm trying this and it's not working. What do you think if I was to try this? And we'd, you know, bounce ideas around. So um, that's, that was one of the reasons I really wanted to, uh, to go with the pragmatic bookshelf. Um, this was my first book and I knew that writing a book would be hard and uh, especially hard at being the first time. So uh, that level of support really, uh, really helped, really helped me to get it finished. So you're you're pleased with the final result then? I am, yes. Yeah, I mean, I I remember at the time at the time I was approaching the page limit and everything. I still had a list of things I wanted to put in there, but uh today I can't remember what was on that list. So, it's fine. You just have to call it done at some point. Any more books in your future, you think? Probably. I I would say while I was writing Practical Vim, I would have told people if I say I'm about to write another book, tell me remind me of this moment when I said never write another book. Um, but I, yeah, never say never. I think, uh, I think if the right topic comes along, I would, uh, I would definitely write another book. So the topic probably wouldn't be Vim then. Like, are you, are, cause you're, you're very much the Vim guy now, right? But like, do you want to remain there or is, are you hoping to kind of eventually 
be known Di- as something else. Diversify. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, yeah, I mean, of course I do other things and uh, I, I am happy to be known as the, I'm happy to be known as something, I guess. And it might as well be the Vim guy. Uh, I do feel as though um, of all the things that I could choose as my, my little niche, it is, um, it is a topic that I enjoy writing about. It's, uh, I mean, I've always, I've always enjoyed teaching, as I said earlier, and I especially enjoy teaching something that uh, was sort of hard-won knowledge, you know, something that I remember finding difficult. I remember this moment of revelation when, when the penny dropped. I really enjoy uh, giving people that moment. Uh, I, I enjoy seeing the penny drop for other people. And so I enjoy teaching a subject that is hard, I suppose, and Vim has a reputation as being very difficult to learn. Uh, and it also has a, a reputation for being very worthwhile learning. So, uh, you know, there's, um, I, I feel like it's a really good topic. And also, it's in, in tech publishing, it's very rare that you can write about a subject that is so mature and so stable. True, that's a good point. Yeah, a lot of technical books go out of date, um, even, even before they're published. And uh, I hope, um, in, in choosing what to put into Practical Vim and what to leave out, I would often ask the question, will this still be relevant in five years' time? And uh, I, would, I would leave out anything that, uh, that didn't satisfy that requirement. Yeah, that's, a, that's an interesting point because you're, you're, not many people can write a useful technology book about something created like 30 years ago. That's right, yeah. Yeah, so I'm, I'm hoping the book will have a long tail. Uh, having, you know, having seen a lot of demands when it was released, it's, uh, it's still doing quite well now. And uh, you know, maybe it'll still be doing well in five years, who knows. So you mentioned that you, you do other things. What do you, what do, you do during the day? I, I say I do other things. More and more of my income is, uh, surround, is um, on the topic of Vim at the moment. Mm-hmm. Um, but my, my background is that I'm a Rubyist. Uh, I've, I, I got my first Rails job in 2008. Uh, and around about 2010, I, I became self-employed. And at that time, I, I, started, um, I started writing the book. And I was uh, supporting myself while I wrote the book. Oh, Pragmatic Bookshelf don't offer an advance of any sort. So I had to, uh, as I say, I had some money saved up, but um, it, it took me longer than four months to write the book. So yeah. I, I supported myself by doing client work. And my main client was um, a company called Censure, who came to me asking for screencasts about a product called Censure Touch. Mm-hmm. Again, that kind of came out of Vimcasts because I, I really enjoyed making the screencasts. I remember thinking, if I could get paid to do this, that would be pretty cool. And then uh, out, out of Vimcast, which is a, you know, I, I give away Vimcast, so I don't really make any money off it directly, but it led to a book deal, and it also led to this, uh, this client work, which ended up supporting me throughout the, the writing process. It's amazing how much that, like, kind of freemium model works for people. Like, if you just give away a lot of teaching, and, and it very quickly establishes you as an expert somewhere, and then you can use that status to turn into sort of more paid engagements. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yes, it's, it's impossible for me to measure uh, how much value I've got out of producing Vimcasts. I'm sure. So uh, I do find it difficult sometimes to motivate myself to make ep- uh, free episodes of Vimcasts if it's going to take me a day of my time to yeah. put out a five-minute video. It can be difficult to motivate myself when I know that I'm not going to see any direct income, but it, it you know it continues to uh, uh, put my name out there as an expert in the field. And um, uh, the way I've started to make money off Vimcasts is by teaching uh, Vim masterclasses, uh, which was something I started around about the time I was finishing my book. I, I was still buzzing with ideas from the book, and uh, I would say while I was writing the book, I learned a lot about Vim. Um, I went into it knowing enough to write a book on Vim. And I had little areas that I was uncertain about that I had to do a lot more research. And then I had little accidental discoveries, things that 
maybe I was using them without noticing and then being forced to think about them and write them down led me to realize there was a pattern there and then exploring that pattern led to new realizations. So I would say throughout the writing process, I, I, I maybe had 10 moments where like fireworks went off in my head and I got really excited. And I, I tried to take as many of those moments as I could and turn it into a, a workshop. Uh, so I have this uh, three and a half hour workshop, which it, um, all of the material in the workshop is in Practical Vim. But with Practical Vim having 120 tips, it's very difficult for me to make any of those tips stand out. Um, the ones that stand out, I guess each one has a title and you could skim through the titles and just like, you know, there are patterns with blog posts, like top 10 blog posts always do well on uh, uh, link sharing sites and so on. I think the, the, ti- the tips in Practical Vim that have the catchiest titles are probably the ones people would turn to, but the ones that are most important actually sound really boring. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I kind of, I felt like in some ways Practical Vim wasn't quite getting the really important messages across. Uh, because they were tips that were scattered throughout the book. And so, yeah, really, the, the class really, really goes deep and really sweats the details on some uh, some of the more arcane points of Vim. And I, I still really enjoy teaching that class. I've, been, I've taught it over 30 times now. Who is the ideal student for that class? I would say it is somebody who, somebody who uses Vim and uh, feels like they're not getting as much out of it as, as they could. The, the kind of tricks that I'm talking about are things that uh, you might discover by accident. Um, I discovered them by accident, but it took me several years to, to get there. Uh, in, in the class, uh, I, I hope that you will have those sort of mind-blowing moments uh, several times. Uh, things that will just change the way you think about Vim entirely. I, I don't really focus on any particular language. All of the little samples are really simple examples. And I ask people to try them out and shout out their keystrokes. And then we compare various solutions and then try and work towards an optimal solution. And the kinds of tricks that I show are things that you will use like dozens of times a day, little time savers. And it doesn't matter if you're working on prose or code or, or uh, server config files. It's, uh, they're, they're just like, you, you can use them everywhere. So I've done a handful of Vim talks and workshop type things myself. And it's re- a really gratifying thing to teach. Uh, because, like you said, you can you there are these mind blowing moments where you show someone something and they go, "Oh my god, I can't believe I didn't know about this!" And like they're so excited. And it's like I, I use I've used this editor for like five years and I had no idea about like the dot command or like something like that. And it's just like, oh wow, I'm and like I get excited for them because it's like your world just changed. Yeah, that's right. It's like discovering a new f- for yourself. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. It's like having children and watching them discover the world. Yeah, so that's that's the joy of teaching, really, isn't it? Yeah. So I, I think I remember talking to you about your master class back in the day, and I was trying to convince you to charge more for it, and you were debating it because you're a frugal guy by nature. So I think you were <laughs> yeah, trying to like, right. you know, provide a lot of value and all that. Like, have, have you changed the price on the, the workshop over time? Yes, I did. Uh, just about a month ago, I raised my prices uh, quite quite substantially, actually. Um, previously, I was charging... Uh, these, these figures are going to be in uh, UK pounds. Um, it was, let's see, £95 full price for a four-hour masterclass online. Uh, and I would run an early bird discount that was £80. And now I've, I've basically I've taken the early bird price and doubled it. Um, so it's now 160 That's the full price ticket. And then 145 is a sort of 10% off. That's my new early bird price. Uh, so it's, it, you know, it's close to double what it was. Have, have you run one at this price point? 
Yeah, I, I just ran two in the last week, actually. Okay. Uh, and it's been a success. I'm, I, it's been a tense month. <laughs> um, you know, uh, I aim to sell around about, well, for the physical classes, I hope to have a class size of about 8 to 12. Um, and I had a class of 10 in London last week. And for the online classes, I can, uh, I can host up to about 20. And we had 15. Awesome. So, well, you know, in almost doubling my prices, I figured, okay, well, if I can sell half as many tickets as I used to, then I'm doing fine. Uh, and uh, yeah, I, I've, I've done better than that. So uh, um, even even if I sold fewer tickets, I made more money. And uh, yeah, it's it, it was a good choice, but it was something I deliberated over for several months. And uh, um, finally, I just uh, about five weeks ago, I, I bit the bullet and uh, made the announcement. And uh, yeah, it's it's turned out fine. So so when are you going to double them again? <laughs> uh, oh, let's let's see how this goes first. Uh-huh. <laughs> Turns out there's elasticity in that price. You might, who knows where it ends. That's right. Uh, one funny thing, actually, with the, uh, the online classes, um, in the past, I've sold most tickets to individuals. So if I sell 20 tickets, usually there are 20 people from different places in the world who aren't working together, which is kind of amazing uh, to have that many people signed in different time zones. Um, this time around, I sold uh, very few tickets to individuals. I sold only f- four or five tickets, I think, to individuals. But I had a couple of bulk orders from companies who wanted uh, five people to attend at once. So they, they got in touch and asked if I would do a, a group discount. So I offered them 15% off the, the full price ticket. And they came back with an order for six or an order for seven. And uh, um, it, it's strange because it's almost like by increasing my price, suddenly it's become visible to a certain class of, um, of potential customer. Well, it's, it's a signal. That's right, yeah. So like, it's like, oh, go to your boss and ask for like, oh, I need 80 pounds to take this class. So like, well, you see, this seems kind of like it's a joke, but like if, as it's more expensive, it's like, oh no, that must be high quality. Cause yeah, it's yeah, that's right. Are most of your people, um, where are they located? It sounds like globally, I guess. Yeah. Well, actually there's another thing. Um, I think for the online class that I just did, I had one person from Canada and I think everyone else was based in Europe. Um, and when I, when I said this on, uh, on Twitter, I mentioned that I'd raise my prices and you said, oh, I, I don't think you'll regret that. Uh, but you should uh, check out our podcast about charging in foreign currencies. Yes. Uh, I don't know. Have you published that one yet? Yes. You have? Okay. one with Paul Farnell. Oh, okay, right. I, I didn't know which one to listen to. Anyway, I'll, I'll check that out. But um, So let me tell you about it right now. Okay, so sure. I, Paul runs a SaaS company uh, here called Litmus. Uh, which is very successful, and I th- I think the question I asked him was like whether is there any one thing that you did that like made a sudden you know jump in signups or is it kind of mostly slow incremental improvement? And he says oh he said it was almost all you know slow incremental improvement. It's just like the this long ramp to, of building a SaaS product. Um, he said except for one thing, which was uh, we changed the currency we're charging in from pounds to dollars. Right. And he said, you know, they, they started, I think he, they started in London or something like that. And then he moved to the, and they realized most of their customers were signing up from the U.S. And so he moved to the U.S., but they were still charging in like in pounds. And then one day he was like, let's just try dollars instead. Um, or like they had like, he said he had like one comment from someone, which was like, I went to the pricing page and then it was in pounds. And I figured, well, that doesn't, that's probably not for me because I'm in the U.S. And then they just left. And he said they only had that, like, that one feedback and they changed that and it made a huge difference in signups. And so I think there's, it might be worth trying out. And like, I know it's, I know you have like a banking pain where this is like somehow like necessary for you or something. Sure. 
uh, but it might be worth doing a couple experiments on that. I, I'm going to do it. Okay. I'm going to do it. You've convinced me. Um, in fact, I did it last night. <laughs> <laughs> I've, uh, I've um, set up my next, uh, my next class, which is going to be 5th of December, and I'm going to charge in dollars. And uh, I'll, uh, I'll let you know how it goes. Hopefully we, we, you just uh, earn some more money. <laughs> I hope so. Just by trying it. Yeah. And now if I can just convince you to raise your prices a little more, then it'll be um, a happy world. Well, I did round up. <laughs> good. When I okay, made the good. conversion, because I figured I'm going to lose some in uh, in the converting them back into pounds. So, uh, sure. Um, yeah. Fair enough. So, master classes, Vimcast. Oh, by, by the way, I have a story for you. I remember. So, right around when you launched Vimcasts, I was contemplating like a paid Vimcast or Vim screencast service. Ah, how about that? And I had started producing a handful of free ones and putting them out there, and like they were getting like a decent amount of att- attention. And I was like, okay, there there probably is a market for this. And I was talking to some people about uh, basically doing kind of like the uh, what has eventually become a very popular format of you know some small amount per, of dollars per month for you know guaranteed you get a screencast every week or something. Yeah. And I was toying around with this idea, and right around then you launched Vimcasts. And you can and they're like I, or I found them right around then, and you were doing it for free, and they were so good, and I was like, "There's no way I can compete with that accent." <laughs> it was just like you just have you have the most soothing screencast voice of in the market, I would say. Oh, thank you. And like the quality was super high, and they were all free, and I was just like, "Well, uh, maybe this isn't where I want to be. <laughs> this guy's killing my market. He's too good." Oh, uh, sorry. So I hated you for a little while. Okay, yeah. Yeah, I mean not, you know, not actively, but uh but I'm over. I can it. I can see why you would. Yeah, that's uh Yeah, we we've recon- we reconciled. I yeah. reconciled in my head. You never know who your free service is uh putting out of business. Yeah, that's that's true. Well, I'm uh I'm also putting myself out of business in a sense because um well, I was I was contemplating uh, a few months ago I asked my audience uh, you know, I I'm I'm finding it difficult to find the motivation to keep on making these free episodes. Uh I'm thinking of switching to a, a subscription as you know as Railscast has done as uh, Ruby Ruby Tapas from Avdi Grimm is doing and uh, there's a few others too. And of course Destroy All Software was I think the first one I saw doing that. And I asked my audience and the feedback was it was encouraging. I mean I'd say I think it was 60% of the people who replied said yes. Uh and I got about 300 responses. So I did the maths and it was like okay 180 people have said they would pay, say, $9 a month. Um, that would make me about $1,600 a month. And it would oblige me to keep making these screencasts, which I'm already finding difficult. And that sum of money wasn't quite enough to make it suddenly like, oh, I can definitely make four screencasts a month, or three screencasts, or two, or whatever I promised yeah. for that. Um, and I looked at, uh, so just to convert that into my own head, that's about £1,000 a month. I'm making more than that per workshop that I run at the moment. And at the moment, I'm doing the workshops about every six weeks. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it kind of seemed as though I would have to do a lot of work, first of all, to change the, the site to a, a sort of, you know, put everything behind a paywall. Um, that would probably put me out of action for a little while. Mm-hmm. And it seemed like a lot of effort, which would end up giving me about the same amount of money and end up cutting my audience from unlimited to about 200 people a month or per episode um, and I just thought all of those um, it, it just seemed like a bad uh, a bad move for me at this time to, to switch to that model so uh, having realised that I was doing quite well with the workshops I'm now focusing on those hoping to write another another course and uh, really just looking on Vimcasts as uh, great marketing for for the workshops that I do so totally which I think is, is a very good use for it I mean it's it is the it is the thing that probably draws a lot of people into your audience and then establishes you as a guy that knows what he's doing and then you can you know sell them other stuff 
Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, including the the Thoughtbot, um, uh, the Learn Prime series that we did. That's right. Yeah, and uh, so we we I've been a big fan of your work, and so I was like, we need some better, or we need some some more Vim stuff, and I was like, we should get Drew. And so uh, we worked out a thing, and you made an actually an awesome series that I learned a ton from. I was expecting like, oh, well, this will probably be I'm going to watch this and review this, and then you yeah. know, I'll just I'll give him some feedback. And I was like, oh my god, and I got out my notebook and I started <laughs> taking notes immediately. Oh, that's brilliant um, to hear. But I haven't I haven't added a lot uh, that many tricks to my repertoire in a while. So uh, that was awesome. So the series is called Navigating Ruby Files in Vim. Um, and it's sort of like intra and inter file navigation when you've got like a Rails project or a gem yeah. or, you know, you're working with library code. And it's just like a lot of good ways for moving between these files. Yeah. So the thing we, we talk about this in the, in the copy, but the thing that it one of the things that I think it does is it, it gets you a little bit more away from documentation. Yes, that's right. It's like, how, how does that link? How does what's the second argument to link to? And you, instead of like pulling open the docs, you jump to the definition of link to. Yeah, and you're like, oh, there it is. Okay, and then you're back in your code. Yeah, and I think it helps you, it encourages you to go source diving, which I think is a great habit for developers to get into. Absolutely, like just just take a peek at the things you're using. How do, how is this implemented under the hood? Um, but it also, I think, uh, is is sort of a time saver as well. Mm, yeah. It sounded like you hinted that there's another workshop in the in the works. Yeah, um, I it's it's still uh, sketches. I couldn't really say what it's going to be. Um, I've got a few ideas, and uh, I need to. Yeah, it's it's quite a lot of work out front to prepare one of these classes, um, but then I can keep on uh, uh, using the same material again and again. So um, it's a big investment, and I haven't quite decided which topic to focus on. But I've got a few ideas. So if if you so you are using the same material, which makes sense. Um, any thoughts on productizing this workshop so you don't have to give it live? Yeah, well, when I announced the, the increase in price, I felt like I had to add some value, uh, not just you know, not just double my prices. <laughs> so um, I promised that I would deliver a screencast summarizing the, the key material from the, the uh, three and a half hour class. Uh, and in the class, you know, there's a lot of a lot of discussion. There's a lot of uh, me leaving people to try stuff out. Um, I, I could call that dead time. It's not really dead time, but if I was making a screencast, obviously that stuff wouldn't go into it. Um, and I figured, so when I run these classes online, um, I can provide a recording. Uh, but if you, you know, let's say you sign up for my four-hour class, and at some point you have to leave for 20 minutes, and you come back, and you want to catch up on that 20 minutes, and you've got like a four-hour block of video that you have to watch online uh, in a flash player, it's really not an attractive prospect to, to scrub through that uh, four hours and find the 20 minutes that you missed. So I think um, uh, certainly if I was taking this class, I would be very grateful of uh, screencasts matching each sort of chapter of, of the of the class. So that's what I've been working on uh, for the past four weeks since I promised uh, to provide this. And I'm hoping to have it finished this week, actually. So that will be available to to everyone who takes the class from now on. Um, and eventually I could make that uh, a standalone product so that you don't have to take the class. Um, at the moment, I'm, I'm billing it as you know revision material for people who have done the class. Um, it could be a standalone product, but at the moment I'm just, I'm really enjoying teaching the class. And uh, I think um, that sort of exclusivity means I can charge a higher price for that. Um, one day, I will maybe become fed up of teaching this class. And at that point, I'll, uh, I'll look at how to, how to make that material available um, in, a, you know, in a screencast um, format that's standalone. Um, but I'm not ready to do that yet. I, I think that would sort of cannibalize the business I'm, I'm doing at the moment. And I don't want to do that yet. Oh yeah. Do you have any uh, recommendations for so so? You have people that come to this class and they they have four hours of you know 
new knowledge dropped on them. Do you have recommendations for how people can actually get these new ideas into their workflow and actually like, right. remember to use them when they go back to work? Yeah, right. Someone was asking me that the other day, and it's a really good question. Um, so I find... Oh, so I think to sort of distill my, my answer, I think uh, it's really good to uh, expose yourself to things and not worry about not understanding them the first time you hear them. If I learned something and I didn't quite understand how it fitted into the things I already knew, I would feel very anxious about that and I would want to connect the dots. Um, and over time, I've... Uh, I mean, one of, one of the things I love about uh, the industry we work in is that you do constantly have to be learning and I enjoy learning and I enjoy teaching and I think they're, um, you know, they, they work together. Um, but oh, since, I, uh, since I started working in this industry, I feel as though I've done more learning even than when I was a student. Um, I've exposed myself to so many new ideas that I haven't understood when I was exposed to them. And it's almost like when you're sort of navigating a, a new city and you keep on coming up at a subway stop and you get to know a little part of town and then you learn another part of town. And then at some point you take a bus journey that connects those two dots. And I kind of feel like that happens with um, with my learning. Um, and I've I've learned to be uh, comfortable with uncertainty, uncertainty and to sort of try and try and create as many loose ends as possible so that at some point I will connect those dots and suddenly I'll have this revelation where everything connects and everything makes sense where previously there were just these little islands of knowledge um, so when it comes to like try, um, trying out vim techniques I think seeing someone doing something following uh, what I might call a best practice and recognizing the kind of a job that they're doing and recognizing that that is a job that you do several times a day and then going and doing your work and noticing while you're doing that job, oh, there's a better way of doing this, but I can't quite remember what it is. That's okay. It's okay to not quite be able to remember the technique, but to notice uh, when you can use it. Um, and then I, I think I think it's really important that you have some sort of repository of loose ends that you can refer to. And for me, it tends to be, um, I bookmark everything. I used to use Delicious, I now use, uh, I think it's Pinboard. Um, everything that I bookmark, I I try and tag it with, uh, I, I imagine myself in three years' time thinking, now, I remember reading something about this. Um, what three words would I use to describe that page that I read today in three years' time? What three w words would spring into my head? Those are the kind of words I use to tag that kind of content. Um, it's my way of saying to myself, yep, yeah, I can't fit this into my knowledge framework today, but... I suspect it will be useful to me in the future, um, and being able to find that kind of information later is really important. So um, I've I, I've been using well, I was using Delicious from about 2007 or something, and I found it just to be a fantastic resource. Imported all my bookmarks into Pinboard, and it's pretty much exactly the same experience today. So uh, that works for me. I think other people might use Evernote or various other note-taking things. Um, my what I do and my recommendation to other people if, as something to try is I actually keep a physical piece of paper with a handful of Vim commands that I'm trying to make uh, more more permanent in my head. Yeah, sure. So like when I was taking notes off your screencast, I was like, okay, here's this. And I like just basically wrote down five of them. I was like, try to get these in your head. Yeah, that's a really good way of doing it as well. Uh, anything else I should ask you about? Anything else you want to cover? Um... Uh, I, I've got a, a side project, which I, I thought I might um, mention. It's... um. So when I when I make vimcasts, I include my keystrokes. At least I I, I add the keystrokes that I think are relevant, and I do it in post production, uh, which is a very very laborious, uh, boring process. Uh, so for a long time, I've wished that I had some way of visualizing my keystrokes in real time. And uh, earlier this year, I actually started trying to build that. Um, and at the moment, it's uh, 
there's nothing really that I can demonstrate, but it's 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 showing some some kind of promise. Um, it's basically a parser for Vim keystrokes, uh, and I, I sort of imagine it maybe running in. Uh, I would perhaps run a Tmux session with split screens, and one would be a full screen Vim, and the other would be just showing all of the keystrokes as I type them. Uh, perhaps with some sort of uh, description or link for uh, how to how to look up the help on it and that sort of stuff. Building some some port tools. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's uh, it's a big project, <laughs> but uh, I've been uh, I've been enjoying having some uh, some remote pairing sessions with uh, a few people, a few friends, and a few strangers as well. Uh, on that topic, so that's uh, that's been my project, my side project that keeps me keeps me coding. Cool. And if it works out, you could release it to the enormous market of people that make Vim screencasts that want to show their keystrokes. That's right. It's going to make me uh, a fortune. A huge, huge money. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Drew, uh, I appreciate you coming by and chatting. This has been awesome. Great. Okay. Yeah, it's been a pleasure. Uh, so, if people want to get in touch with you, what's your preferred method for that? Um, I I use Twitter quite quite a lot, so uh, I am Nelstrom there. That's my my screen name in most places. I'm also Nelstrom on GitHub. Um, my my email address, if you have any Vim questions, I'm Drew at Vimcasts.org, and uh, I'm always happy to answer any questions about Vim there. So, uh, if you'd like to access the show notes for this episode, you can go you can go to thoughtbot.com/slash/giantrobots/slash/seventy-three. Uh, thanks, Drew, and thanks, everybody, for listening. Take care.